Good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. It's great that you are all here with us as well. Please open in your New Testament to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to read verses 28 through 36. This is the, uh, Luke's account of an amazing story called the Transfiguration. Uh, this account is also found in Mark chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 17. So hopefully you have some nimble fingers today because you're going to be moving back and forth, especially between the Luke uh, text and the Matthew text in Matthew 17. So Luke 9 and also Matthew 17. You might just want to put your finger there um, for later on. Let's, let's begin reading in verse 28. Some eight days later, some eight days after these sayings, he that is Jesus took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these men were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up your word to our minds and to our hearts today. Please remove distractions uh, it's been a busy season. Please help us to focus on your word and your amazing love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So during the Christmas season, we've been focusing on Jesus' birth as well as his early childhood. And this morning, I want us to walk a little further down that road from Jesus' birthplace in Bethlehem towards Jerusalem where he would ultimately be crucified. And I want us to look at an event that's been of interest to me for a number of years um, called the Transfiguration. I'm not sure I've ever preached on this, but um, it's, it's, been, it's been a lot putting these three texts together from Mark and Matthew and Luke. It's kind of like preaching three messages, but um, it's, it's been a great study for me personally and hope to convey some of the truths um, that I've seen to you as well. The Transfiguration is really an event all about the person of Jesus. The main character of our text is not Peter, although he's very interesting in what he does and says. Uh, the main character is not Emo Moses, nor is it Elijah, although they make it compelling. Uh, in this story, we see Jesus being transfigured. And although we see Moses and Elijah appearing to Jesus and his disciples, they are only conversing with Jesus. And they are discussing Jesus' departure from Jerusalem. And although we hear the voice of God, the Father, uh, out of the cloud, he is proclaiming the identity of Jesus and then the responsibility of his followers toward him, Jesus. And there are four things that we want to talk about this morning. We want to talk about Jesus' departure. 
We want to talk about his glory. We want to talk about his identity. And lastly, about his comfort. And these are all right from our text in Luke chapter 9 and also Matthew chapter 17. So let's go through the text here in Luke 9 and we'll get to these points as, as we go along. Verse 28 Luke begins by saying, some eight days after these sayings. Now, it's interesting because if you look at the Matthew text, Matthew says six days later. Mark basically says the same thing, but Luke says some eight days after these sayings. So we have to understand, first of all, that it's some eight days. He's not being literally eight days. And it's also important to notice that back then there was the tendency to overlap days and counting days. So he might have taken part of one day and part of another day, and it became eight days, which would equate with Matthew's six days. Luke refers to various sayings here as well. He says, some days after these sayings, well, what might he be referring to? We, we have to understand that a lot has been going on with Jesus' teaching, and he might be referring back to some of the things he said earlier in, in, in Luke chapter 9, um, where he talks about his suffering in, in verse 22 and suffering and being rejected and being killed and being raised up. And then the whole issue of denial in verses 23 and 24. And for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. But then he goes on in, in verse 26 to talk about his second coming and the glory that will be evident when he comes again, he says in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And then he says this, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's a very interesting statement, and it's a little difficult to put together because all the disciples died before the end of the first century. And Jesus hasn't come a second time. So it's a little interesting, how do we, how do we put that together? And I think the best way to explain it um, is that what, ha what occurs in the transfiguration, which is immediately to follow, and, and the other authors, Mark as well as Matthew, all talk about this glory that's to be revealed. And, and these, these men, some of them not seeing death until they had seen the glory of God, the transfiguration follows immediately after. And so it seems that, that this is really a precursor. This is a preview of the second coming in the sense of God's glory being seen to some degree. It will ultimately not be seen fully until the second coming, but it is seen here in a very marvelous way as we look at the, the story of the transfiguration. In verse 28, it says that Jesus took along Peter and John and James. Now, uh, these were three of the 12 disciples, probably some of the more familiar disciples. They were part of what we call Jesus' inner circle. Some people have said they were the chosen of the chosen. Uh, they were all fishermen, but these three had a tendency to be asked by Jesus to go with him on, on various occasions to be part of his ministry. So these individuals, Peter, James, and John, went up on this mountain with Jesus, and, and the John that's referring to is the John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and, and also the book, book of Revelation. Uh, we might wonder where this mountain was that he talks about in verse 28. Uh, it could very well have been Mount Hermon, um, which was close to Caesarea Philippi, which was mentioned in Matthew 16, just prior to Matthew 17, where the transfiguration is recorded. So that would seem to be a likely place, although some have said it could have been Mount Tabor. We should also notice in Matthew's text, he doesn't say it here in Luke, that these men went up on the mountain by themselves. 
there was no one else around, those three and Jesus. And verse 28 tells us Jesus' reason for going up on the mountain. He and them, they went up on the mountain to pray. That's why they went up. Matthew doesn't record it, Mark doesn't record it, but Luke does. Jesus wanted to pray. And I think it's interesting to just to pause for a minute and to realize that Jesus lived his life very intentionally. He went up on the mountain to pray. He didn't just get up in the morning and let the world around him decide, what should I do today? But he had an agenda. Obviously, people came to him and he healed them and he dealt with them, but he had a plan. And his plan for that day was to go up to the mountain and pray. And prayer was a part of his intentionality, and it's a good reminder to us as well. It's a great example. So while he was praying, something happened. It says in verse 29, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. The parallel text in Matthew 17, you might want to just turn back there for a moment. In Matthew chapter 17, in verse 2, it said, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Mark expands this in his gospel, and he says his garments became exceedingly radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. <laughs> so Tide would, you know, the best products of Tide would not have, have touched this at all. Jesus' clothing was amazingly white. His face shone like the sun. And Matthew says that he was specifically transfigured. Well, what does that mean? Well, we get the English word known as metamorphosis from that word. The Greek word has the idea of changing into another form. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus is praying, and in the midst of his disciples, he is changed into another form. His appearance is radically changed. Now, try to put yourself in the position of Peter, James, and John for a minute. They knew what Jesus looked like. They'd been hanging out with him. They spent days with him, and all of a sudden they see Jesus, and his face is shining like the sun, and his garments are exceedingly white. I don't know how that he can even look at Jesus. If you know, we, can't, we, we need a pair of sunglasses to look at the sun, and we can't look at it for very long. But his face shone like the sun. It must have been shock and astonishment in the minds and hearts of the disciples. What on earth? Is taking place before us. And if that's not enough, two guys enter into the picture. These weren't two hikers coming up the mountain. These weren't some of the other disciples. All of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appear. Verse 30, behold, two men were talking with him, that is with Jesus, and they were Moses and Elijah. Peter knew who they were. I don't think they wore name tags, but Peter knew that they were Moses and Elijah. But Moses and Elijah certainly knew who Jesus was. They were on the mountain talking with Jesus. And why were Moses and Elijah there? Why were they chosen to appear as opposed to Abraham or David or Isaiah? It's a good question. It appears that they were chosen because they represented the law and the prophets. And Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. 
I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So ultimately, he was the fulfillment of what they represented. It must have been a wonderful thing for them to actually talk to Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God. And it's worth noting, think about this for a minute. Elijah and Moses were alive and well. Elijah and uh, Moses had died. Uh, it, it tells us in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 34 that Moses, a servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, and the Lord buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Moses was dead. He was buried. Elijah, on the other hand, a little different story. He was taken up in a whirlwind. In 2 Kings chapter 2, it says that Elijah and Elisha were going along and talking. Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by, went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Whoosh. He was gone. Gone. But he's here. Both Moses and Elijah were alive and well. And it's a great reminder to us, a great picture of the fact that life does go on for us as believers forever. This was some 1,500 years uh, after um, Moses had died and some 900 years after Elijah had been taken up. And there they were on the mountain talking to Jesus Life is eternal. What we have before us, what we're living right now, is, is so short compared to the... We're like a drop in the ocean of eternity. It is so brief. We're like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away, James says. I was struck several weeks ago. I was, I was reading in a book about the mother of a young boy uh, who died. Who, the, the mother actually died, and, and the boy was two years old. And the mother said these final words to her husband. She said this. She said, keep eternity before the children. What a great word. Keep eternity before the children. And how we need to do that as parents to realize, you know, our kids aren't going to be here forever. We're not going to be here forever. But to keep eternity before our children and to keep it before our friends and other people that we talk with as well. Eternity is a very, 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 I mean, there's, there's too many varies to, to conclude it. It just goes on and on. It's eternal. And the Bible says that God, so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That life is available to everyone who believes in Jesus the other side of it is also true. It says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Everybody needs Jesus to have life eternal with Christ. So Moses and Elijah are there on the mountain, and there's, in, there's this interaction that begins to go on in verse 31. Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, were speaking of his, that is Jesus' departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So that's, our, that's the first point I want us to draw this morning. Our text speaks about the departure of Jesus. The depart, departure in the Greek is actually the word exodus, 
which is a very interesting thought. But basically, we're talking here about Jesus' mission. We're talking about his departure to leave in Jerusalem on the cross, being crucified. That's what they were discussing with Jesus. The children sang beautifully uh, several nights ago at their Christmas Eve service, and they sang a, a song entitled, Little Baby Jesus. And one of the verses of that went like this, Little Baby Jesus, born in Bethlehem, Little Baby Jesus, born to die, to suffer on the cross for you and I. That's why Jesus came. That was his mission. That's why he came to depart. He lived to die, to die on a cross for you and for I. In the week before the transfiguration, right before this, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he, he was saying in 21, he warned them, instructed them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ at that point, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Notice something in that verse. Notice the word must in verse 22. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and, 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 and be killed and be raised up. He must. Jesus didn't say that the Son of Man is going to be rejected and killed and be raised. Rather, he said he must be. That was Jesus' mission. That's why he came. That's why they were talking about the departure. Because it was so significant to humanity for Jesus to come and to live and to die, to live a sinless life and to die for my sins and for your sins so that we could be justified by faith and end up in heaven if we place our trust in him. When Jesus died on the cross, his arms were stretched out. And what were the words he said? It is finished. It, my mission, the reason I came, is complete. I have died for the sins of the world, for the sins of everyone in this room, out of his great love for us. Christianity is ultimately a rescue religion. That's what it is. It's a rescue religion. And all of us, everyone, everyone on this planet needs to be rescued through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So we, talk, we, we first see then, we're talking about Jesus' departure here in our text. But secondly, I want us to notice as, as Luke continues on, the text speaks of Jesus' glory. Verse 32, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Jesus' face is shining like the sun. His clothes are incredibly, radiantly, gleamingly white. What kind of impact do you think that had on Peter? Keep your finger here. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1 for a moment, and we'll see what Peter had to say. 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter reflects on this event that he had with Jesus and with James and John and Elijah and Moses, 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18. 
He writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This was some roughly 30 years later, after the event. Peter was up on the mountain seeing this with his eyes, ultimately hearing the voice of God the Father from the cloud. And he reveals it to us again in 2 Peter chapter 1, some 30 years later. Notice in verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, we heard this utterance made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter saw the divine glory of Jesus on the mountain. You know, it's interesting, in the high priestly prayer of John, and this is pertinent to what I'm saying, so listen please. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. And he says in verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then in verse 5, he says, Now, Father, he says, Glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Think about that for a minute. The glory that I had with you, Father, before the world was. Before Jesus became man, became flesh, and took on skin as a baby, we realized that Jesus had full and total glory before he became a man. And he laid that full glory aside. He divested himself of that full glory. He was willing to deprive himself of that full glory to come here as a baby, to live among men and to die for us. And it's interesting in that text, Jesus is requesting that God the Father would give him that glory that he previously had. And it reminds us that something was lacking in his humanity. His full glory was not being revealed. But it will be someday. And there's sort of a preview of it here on the Mount of Transfiguration. This transfiguration occurred for a period of time and then it was gone and it was over. But we see facets of Jesus' glory while he's living on the earth at other times. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Now, now John was on the mountain. Was he referring to this? The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But then it's also interesting that in John chapter 2, when Jesus turned the water into wine, John writes, This, this beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. So that glory was evident in that miracle and probably in the other miracles and signs that Jesus performed, at least seven of them through the Gospel of John. So we see here his glory 
There was a sighting of the always divine Jesus on this mountain, but he was seen in a different form than what the disciples had always seen him. It was a glimpse of what will happen in the second coming. And if you go back to in Luke chapter 9, again there it says, but uh, the Son of Man uh, will come in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. And in Matthew 24, we read in that second coming, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Matthew 24, verse 30. And John MacArthur puts it this way, in his human form, Jesus Christ was veiled. But when he comes again to earth, he will come in his full divine majesty and glory, a glimpse of which Peter, James, and John witnessed on the mountain. There could henceforth be no doubt in their minds that he was God incarnate. And remember, just before this, Jesus had been telling his disciples that he was going to die. And it was very important for them to probably realize, again, be, be reconnected with who Jesus really was as they see him transfigured on the mountain and they saw his glory. Now, Peter says something very surprising here. After this glory is, is revealed, uh, it says in, in verse 31, who appearing in glory, we're speaking about his departure. And then verse 32, it says, now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. When they saw that they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Now, he was fully awake, the text in Luke says, but the text in Mark does indicate that he and the other disciples had become terrified and when he responded that way in Mark's account, it says, for he did not know what to answer, for, for they became terrified. So it, it appears that his response here of these three tabernacles, one for you, one for you, and one for you, you're all on equal footing, was related to the fact that he was terrified by what was going on. So what do you think about Jesus' suggestion to Jesus? How about we make three tabernacles? Peter might have been thinking about the Feast of Tabernacles where they would make these temporary dwellings. And these guys are here. Um, maybe we can keep things going on longer here. You might be thinking before Jesus has to die. Um, let's make some tabernacles. Treat you all equally. A lot of people in our society would say, that's a great idea. Everything has to be equal. But... Peter, but I should say Moses and Elijah and Jesus were not equal. They all had been men, but Moses and Elijah were sinful men. Jesus was a sinless man. Were Moses and Elijah ever called the Son of God? No. Jesus is in a different category, a totally different level. Some people might say, well, it's kind of like the Olympics. You know, you get three pedestals. You know, you get the silver, and you get the gold, and you get the bronze, and maybe we'll give the bronze to Elijah, and maybe we'll give the silver to, to Moses, and maybe we'll give Jesus the gold. Totally out of sync with the reality of biblical theology. Jesus is on a totally different level. And I can't help but think that now, Jesus understood what was going on with Peter, but almost blasphemous words. Uh, coming from Peter. 
um, at this point. But again, he's, he's frightened out of his mind. He's scared spellless. Okay, so what happens now? The Father, God the Father is going to say something from the clouds. So let's look at verse 35 of chapter 9. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So here we have the identity of Jesus revealed from our text. Jesus is God's son. God the Father says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Almost the identical words that were stated by God the Father when Jesus was baptized. The voice coming from the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was more than a man. Jesus was the Son of God. A few weeks ago when I left church, I had turned my radio on and, and uh, I was listening to Alistair Begg on the radio. Um, I, I love his accent, and I love his theology. Um, and he said this. He said, There was a time when Jesus was God, but not man. But there never was a time when he was a man, but not God. That's a great statement. There was a time when Jesus was God, but not man. But there was never a time when he was man, but not God. Jesus always was God. He always will be God. And he was God when he was man. Remember, he is Emmanuel, God with us, as we sang earlier. Now, God may very well be saying something specific here to Peter, you know, because after Peter makes this statement, why don't we do this, this, and this, the voice out of the cloud says, this is my beloved son, it could have been, you know, kind of a message to Peter here. Let's get it together here. This is my son. He's on a different level than everybody else. But it's interesting that God calls Jesus his son, and Jesus certainly calls God his father. Uh, in John chapter 5, he says, My father is working until now. And when he speaks to Caiaphas, Caiaphas says, Who are you? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. So God the Father calls Jesus his son. Jesus calls God his father. And then Jesus tells Caiaphas that I am the son of God. And in Matthew chapter 16, why don't you turn over there for one moment. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples. And in verse 15, Jesus is saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, what did you say? Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So he calls God his Father here, and he affirms the statement that Peter makes that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the one and only Son of God. 
and he is the beloved son of God. He is the object of God the Father's love, which when we think about the cross and the crucifixion, reminds us of God's great love in sending his only son, his only son whom he loved, to die for me and for you. Marvelous, marvelous truth. And then that God was well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus said, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And in the Luke text, it says, Jesus was my chosen one. He was endorsed by God the Father. And then there's the practical point. Listen. Listen to him. We've seen the identity of Jesus, but there's also the responsibility. Listen to him. Could have been related to Peter who prior to this rebuked Jesus for saying that Jesus was going to die. And Peter said to him, get behind me, Satan. Could have been that, that the idea is, Peter, listen to Jesus and what he said. It wasn't your plan. Maybe your plan was to have Jesus come and rule over the, the take over Rome and, and reign here. That's not the plan now. The plan for him is to die. And so maybe this is more of a distinct message to Peter to get on board with God's plan and God's program. Well, whether it is or not, it's a distinct message to all of us to listen to Jesus, to get on board with his plan that he came to die and to save us from our sins and to be our king while we live on this earth and ultimately the king that we will serve forever and ever and ever. We must listen to Jesus and listen to the word of God where his word is seen and taught, which we read. He is our king. We obey him and we listen to him. Lastly, I want to share one more thing. And it's the comfort of Jesus. Verse 35. Actually, let me go back to Matthew. Matthew 17. We'll close here in Matthew chapter 17. Verse 6 of Matthew 17, when the disciples heard this, they fell down on the, to the ground and they were terrified. It was like a face plant. They fell down to the ground. They were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus, Jesus himself alone. These men were terrified at what they had seen and what they heard. And what did Jesus do? It says in verse 7, he touched them. He touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. Here we have the majesty and glory of Christ that's been evident on the mountain. And we see the majestic Jesus touching his disciples to comfort them in their time of agonizing fear and terror. What a great God. That same hand is seen in Matthew in, in, in Revelation chapter 1. The Apostle John turns to see the voice that was speaking to him 
And he goes on to say, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And then he said, John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. He placed his right hand on John. The comfort, the compassion of our all-powerful Savior. Keep that in mind today, men, women, and children. Jesus wants to comfort you. He is a, a God of compassion. Yeah, there are things in our lives that are so painful and crushing, but Jesus still wants to comfort us and help us through those struggles that we have. So this was an amazing day. First, Peter, James, and John climb the mountain with Jesus. They see Jesus transfigured, his face shining like the sun. Clothes are white and gleaming. Moses and Elijah, heroes of the past, appear. They start talking to Jesus. Disciples become terrified. And then there's a cloud that overshadows them. They hear a voice out of the cloud, the voice of God the Father, like sensory overload. How much more could the eyes handle and, and the ears hear? And then the touch of Jesus to comfort them. What a story. But we learned about the mission Jesus lived to die. We see his glory, a precursor, a preview of what will come in his second coming. We see that he is the very Son of God. He has all authority over us, and we are to listen to him. And he seeks to comfort us as his followers. Let's pray together.